Hi, I'm Karina Bemisterfer, host of Morning Cup of Murder, your daily true crime podcast. Yes, you heard me right. Daily true crime. Every day, Morning Cup of Murder tells you a straightforward, short-form story about murder, true crime, cold cases, disappearances, serial killers, cults, and more. And I do that all in under 15 minutes. With over three years of stories and over 20 million downloads, the Morning Cup of Murder podcast has become a staple of so many people's daily routines. So why not add it to yours? Stream Morning Cup of Murder everywhere you listen to podcasts. And remember, stay safe. Rex Sherman is a demon that walks among us. A predator that ruined families. The Lisk Long Island Serial Killer podcast was shocked when the news broke of Rex Hewerman's arrest. After more than a decade of searching, law enforcement officials had finally pieced together enough evidence to bring formal charges against Rex Hewerman. Initially charged with three murders, Hewerman is now officially charged with all four deaths in the Gilgo 4 case. I'm your host, Chris Moss, and the Lisk podcast will be releasing new episodes with interviews and fresh insight on the case as Rex Hewerman awaits trial in Long Island. While we are relieved by the arrest, the List podcast team will be working hard to share new developments and perspectives as we get them. So please keep your eyes and ears out for new episodes, and if you haven't already, please listen to seasons one and two of Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer, wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen up, guys, because I've got a new show to add to your listening roster. What if you could go through every day energized, motivated, and clear of mind? Taking a few minutes to start your day in a positive manner can make all the difference. And since I know you all love morning podcasts, I want to recommend a great show for you. It's called Wake Me Up, and it features mindfulness, meditation, and motivation perfectly blended to get your day going. You can even start the episodes right from bed. Once you get in the habit of listening to Wake Me Up every morning, I'm sure you won't want to stop. So go check out Wake Me Up Today and join the thousands of people who are using it to have a better day every day. Just search for Wake Me Up in your preferred podcast player or follow the link in the show notes. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder... It's hard to believe there are still so many unsolved cases. Cases that keep some people up at night, desperate to know the answers. On September 23rd, 1935, the first of what would be many human torsos turned up in a seedy area of Cleveland, Ohio. Mutilations that have, to this day, never been close to solving. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. During the 1930s, the city of Cleveland, Ohio, was on the rise. The population was growing rapidly, a melting pot brewing along the way, and laboring jobs were plentiful due to Cleveland's powerful steel and manufacturing base. The city was doing so well that the Great Lakes Exposition and the Republican National Convention, among many other events, were slated to take place there over the coming decade. It was a place where the Great Depression was becoming a thing of the past, and people were finally getting back on their feet in an extraordinary way. Well, at least that's what it seemed like on the surface. 
In the other parts of Cleveland, the seedier ones, lived the displaced sufferers of the Depression who weren't so lucky. People who lived in makeshift hobo communities that occupied an area called Kingsbury Run, rode the rails to escape Cleveland's brutal winters, and hopped from place to place looking for a life that would treat them just a little bit better. Just a little bit east of Kingsbury Run was a line of bars, brothels, flop houses, and gambling dens called the Roaring Third. And it was here that a still unknown monster committed what would be Cleveland's most notorious crime in history. A crime that took place in the dark corners of a booming city and made the citizens pause their celebrations. On September 5th, 1934, a young man walking the shores of Lake Erie found the body of a young woman washed up on the beach. You see, what this poor man happened upon was the woman's lower torso, amputated at the knees and doused with a chemical that turned her skin red, tough, and leathery. This lady of the lake was never identified, but rather taken to a morgue and forgotten until two years later when police realized that she fit a pattern that they were chasing. While she is, in modern days, considered one of the first victims of a man that they would later call the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, not all researchers can agree that victim number zero, as she would later be called, is the first on what would become a list of 12. No, many stand by the first known victim, a man named Edward Adrassi, whose murder sparked the beginning of the Cleveland Torso Murder Investigation. Edward's nude body was found on September 23, 1935 by two teenage boys in the Jackass Hill area of Kingsbury Run, lying about 30 feet from the body of another man. Edward had been both decapitated and emasculated, had rope burns on his wrists, and had been dead for about two days before his body was found. His body was clean and drained of blood. Identified by his fingerprints, police found out that 28-year-old Edward was a frequent visitor of the Roaring Third, had a pretty decent arrest record, and was a rumored homosexual. Lying nearby was the body of a man who would only be known as John Doe One, a body covered with that same chemical as the Lady of the Lake, though, like I said, it would take two years for her death to be potentially connected. John Doe One has never been identified, though just like Edward Adrassi, his body had been decapitated and emasculated. He was likely killed three to four weeks before his body was found. With the discovery of these two horribly mutilated bodies, an investigation into the potential murderer began. On either January 26th or February 7th, 1936, the body of a female victim was found neatly wrapped in newspaper and packaged into two half-bushel baskets left alongside the Hart Manufacturing Building. She was, of course, thoroughly dismembered, with every piece recovered except for her head, which would turn up 10 days later in a vacant lot. Her cause of death, like the others, was the severing of her head. Fingerprints indicated that she was Florence Genevieve Polio, a local waitress, barmaid, and known sex worker who lived right on the edge of the Roaring Third. An autopsy would later determine that not only did she die two to four days before she was found, but that the killer waited until rigor mortis set in to dismember the rest of her body. The fourth victim was found on June 5, 1936 in Kingsbury Run. Doomed to remain a John Doe, this man was decapitated while still alive 
and though his head was eventually found, the only real piece of information investigators knew was that he was between 20 to 23 years old, had a light complexion with reddish-brown hair, stood about 5 foot 10 or 11, and had six very unusual tattoos, ones that you would think would have helped with identification. Despite having a death mask viewed by thousands, he remains unidentified. Though the tattooed man was the fourth victim found, he was not the fourth victim killed. John Doe 3, found on July 22, 1936, but killed before the tattooed man, became the only known West Side victim of the torso murderer. He died two months before he was found and had been dismembered while still alive. He remained unidentified despite his head being recovered, and due in large part to the amounts of blood found seeping into the ground, investigators determined that he was likely killed right where the teenage girl found his body. The torso of John Doe 4 was found on September 10, 1936, in Kingsbury Run, after a transient tripped over his chest, and the lower half of his body was found in an open sewer nearby by police divers. Hundreds came out to see the discovery, and the coroner noted the lack of hesitation marks showed that they were dealing with a skilled and confident killer, possibly one familiar with human anatomy. He, of course, had his head severed while still alive in one clean stroke, dying instantly. At this point, there had been six very brutal, very gory killings over the course of just a year. So to say the citizens of Cleveland were up in arms may be a bit of an understatement. While bodies kept turning up, safety director Elliot Ness became involved in the Mad Butcher case. At the time, Elliot was well known for heading the Untouchables, a group of federal law enforcement agents that earned their notoriety when they took down the notorious gangster Al Capone. Believing he could bring the same level of confidence to the torso case, he and the other investigators were called for a meeting by the local coroner to go over the details and discuss the profile of who may be their killer while two officers, the pair out of uniform and dressed to blend in, went to Kingsbury Run and the Roaring Third to interview thousands of residents and collect as much information as they possibly could. On February 3rd, 1937, the upper torso of Jane Doe 1 was found in the same spot as the non-canonical victim, the Lady of the Lake. Jane Doe, whose head was never found, had been dead for about three to four days. Unlike the previous victims, her cause of death was not decapitation. That happened after she was already dead. On June 6, 1937, a second Jane Doe was found beneath the Lorraine-Carnegie Bridge and would become the only black victim of the Mad Butcher. Her head was recovered later and a coroner determined that she had been dead for about a year prior to her discovery. Jane Doe, too, was found by a teenage boy and, next to her body, was a burlap sack containing the skeletal remains of what turned out to be a small black woman in her 40s. She was unofficially identified as Rose Wallace, but the leads about her disappearance led nowhere. Another Jane Doe was found on April 8, 1938, though all they found were her thighs, left foot, and halved torso, and another John Doe was found on July 6, 1938. And finally, Jane Doe 4 and John Doe 6 were found on August 16, 1938. Both had been dead for months before their bodies were found wrapped in butcher paper with rubber bands and likely refrigerated prior to being dumped. 
Their bodies were placed in plain view of Elliot Ness's office window, taunting the lawman who seemed unlikely to catch the mysterious man preying upon Cleveland's lower class. Two days later, Elliot and a group of 35 police officers raided Kingsbury Run, gathering 63 men and burning down most of the shanty town in the process, after which he became a sort of villain in the eyes of many Clevelanders. Though these men and women were the 12 confirmed victims of the Cleveland Torso murderer, many believe that he had a few more victims, including the Lady of the Lake and a man named Robert Robertson, who was found on July 22, 1915, 12 years after the last confirmed cases. There is also speculation the Torso Killer did not stick to Cleveland, but rode the rails and amassed some victims outside of Ohio altogether. Places like Pennsylvania, where three headless bodies were found in boxcars and others in a swamp near Newcastle. And in 1938, the torso killer claimed to have killed a victim in Los Angeles. Though, when investigators checked out the lead, it brought them to a plot with only animal bones. During his time investigating the murders, though his level of involvement depends on the source material, Elliot Ness claimed to have solved the case. And just days after his notorious raid, arrested Dr. Francis E. Sweeney, claiming he was absolutely certain that he was the man responsible for the Cleveland Torso murders. And on the surface, it seemed like he might be right. Dr. Sweeney was a medical soldier in World War I and was responsible for field amputations at the time, making him a likely candidate for the skillful dismemberment of the torso murderer. Not to mention the fact that he supposedly failed two of the polygraph tests polygraph tests issued to him. But before he could be tried, it was revealed that Dr. Sweeney was actually the first cousin of Elliot Ness's political opponent, Congressman Martin Sweeney. Realizing that there was no way he could get away with prosecuting him successfully, Dr. Sweeney was let go. A second arrest took place in 1939, when bricklayer Frank Dolezal brought in for the murder of Florence Polillo after police discovered that he not only lived with Florence for a time, but was acquainted with both Edward Andrassi and Rose Wallace. Police claimed that the man confessed, but before he could go to trial, Frank was found hanging inside of his prison cell. When an autopsy was done on his body, it was found that he suffered from six broken ribs during his time in custody leading many to believe his supposed confession may have been coerced. There have been no other arrests or identifications made, and after four horrifying years, the murders stopped just as quickly as they begun, creating what remains one of the most sensational, unsolved crimes in our nation's history. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on September 24th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.